1: When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to
3: monday.com. Have you ever thought about making your own podcast? It's never been easier to get yourself set up, especially if you choose Buzzsprout to host your show.
4: Yeah, we've been using Buzzsprout from the very start. Each week, it automatically distributes your episodes to all of the major platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify.
3: It also has loads of tools to help you promote your show. You get a customizable website, you can track your download numbers and they even help you find a sponsor. We have a special offer code in the show notes that takes you to the Buzzsprout website.
4: Signing up to a paid plan by following the link lets Buzzsprout know that we sent you. It gets you a $20 Amazon gift card and helps support our show. Just go to the link in the show notes to find out more.
3: Hello and welcome to a special Halloween edition of New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. Wow, I sound like something out of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, yeah, I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor.
4: And I'm Cat Delange. I'm features editor at New Scientist. This week we're joined by a special cast drawn from the coffins and dungeons of New Scientist. Say hello to Beth Ackley, Sam Wong, Leal Liverpool, and from the US, Leah Crane and Chelsea White.
3: Hi. Hello. Hello. Coming up on the show, we've got actual zombies, we've got a scientific explanation for the sighting of ghosts. And we visit the most terrifying and destructive monster in the universe. Uh, And we should say that everything we're going to talk about today is proper science. It's stuff that we've reported properly in the magazine. And, uh, you know, we're of course, we're not veering off into the paranormal for this special episode. So with that in mind, let's turn to our first story. Now, the absolute classic Halloween monster is the... Vampire. So let's start with a definition. A vampire in folklore is a creature that drinks the blood of living animals in order to maintain a youthful appearance and to prolong its life. That's right, everyone, right? Sounds mm-hmm. right. Uh, OK. And by that definition, we know that at least recently there have been vampires walking the streets of Silicon Valley. Right, Kat?
4: Well, I'm not sure about actual vampires, but there is something called a young blood treatment that has been available in California. So... People don't actually drink the blood um, and it's not all of the blood, but I think we can say it's vampires because it's the blood plasma. And um, what happens is people get infusions of young blood, which is thought to rejuvenate them and make them younger and live a better, longer life.
3: All right. So this just to be clear. It's not the the vampire facial, is it?
4: No, no, not. Uh, we're not talking about Kim Kardashian here. Uh, I think a vampire facial is where well. you get injections of blood into your face. Uh, similar ballpark, perhaps, but what we're talking about here is an infusion of uh, plasma into your body. And the process is supposed to ju- rejuvenate the brain and the organs and not just make you look younger.
3: It might sound really startling if you've never heard of this before, but there has been a lot of research showing that young blood does give benefits. So some of the evidence comes from studies uh, that stitched old mice and young mice together. So they shared the blood supply um, and that rejuvenated the brain of the older mouse. Uh, it didn't help the young mouse very much, actually. But
4: Yeah, quite the opposite, actually. The no. young mouse kind of got older yeah. and the old mouse got younger. And, they, and then they refined the
3: experiments a bit more, as you say, so they... Uh, then they looked at the plasma. So they just took the plasma from the young mouse and injected that into the old mouse and that rejuvenated the brain and other organs like the liver, the heart and the muscle. Uh, So yeah, we know there's something in the plasma.
4: Yeah, and this even works across species. So we have reported um, on a study where blood plasma from 18-year-old humans um, was injected into 12-month-old mice.
3: And a 12-month-old mouse is really old, right, isn't it? Equivalent to... a 50-year-old person. And at 12 months, mice start to show signs of ageing. They move more slowly and perform badly on memory tests.
4: Yeah, so the plasma improved uh, the mobility and cognitive powers of the mice and they even grew new neurons.
3: And it was this kind of study that was enough to get some people to stop paying to get infusions of young blood for themselves.
4: Yeah, so um, it was called a trial but it really wasn't a clinical trial because there was no a placebo group Um, and to take part in this trial all you had to do was have eight thousand dollars to spare that was last time we reported on this Mm. although um, since then the FDA has actually um, put out a statement saying that there is no proper science to back this up and people shouldn't do it and the trial I'm doing sort of air quotes there the trial has been uh, suspended since then but this is something that people have spent a lot of money on in the past
3: Yeah. And it's it's very much okay. Even though this trial has been shut down, it's very much a massive area of research. Um, Yeah. I mean, the trial did provoke a lot of um, massive headlines and and kind of fear stories. I spoke to a longevity scientist about this once and she said uh, there was talk of body clinics where you could go and get a baby sewn onto you. Um, You know, these things aren't happening, but people are imagining them.
4: Yeah, I do remember at the time that we ran this story, there was the TV series Silicon Valley and there was this character who gets attached to what they call a blood boy in order to get this young boy's blood. Um, And, and, you know, you you sort of think, well, this does come from research that's kind of stitched mice together to turn them into Siamese twins. So it's not, you know, that far-fetched if you think about the origins, but, you know, uh, this isn't going to happen. I think one scientist pointed out that, when you stitch these mice together, they're also sharing their organs, and so it's it's not just about getting uh, the blood. The, the effects that they see in the mice might also come from from the organs.
3: Yeah, because it cleans their blood and and it processes it, and so it might not be just the something about the blood. And it's the it's the plasma we want, right? But what is it? <laughs> what is it in the plasma? I mean,
4: that, that's the billion dollar question. So yeah. um, I, I wish I knew the answer to that. I'd be very rich and very famous and very young looking. Um, <laughs> Some of the research suggests it's a protein called GDF11, and this is a rejuvenating protein that um, decreases in abundance as we get older. Another interesting protein is called osteopontin, um, and that keeps uh, blood cells young and gives an immune boost. So, you know, maybe it's the immune system, maybe it's rejuvenating blood cells. And there's also a protein called TIMP2 that's been shown to improve the performance of old mice in cognitive tests. So we don't know yet exactly what it is. It might be a combination of these things. There's a lot of hype around it.
3: Yeah, I think that's I think it is gonna be a combination, isn't it? Because there are a lot of proteins in blood plasma. Um I saw a paper a couple of days ago in the journal Aging Cell that found five hundred and twenty-nine proteins in, in plasma all of those have been reported to change their levels of expression with age. Um, And 12% of them, uh, they were known to regulate lifespan. And nine of those uh, actually extend lifespan when you manipulate the levels in mice. So there's a lot going on.
4: There is. And it might be, you know, it might also be a combination of that we need to boost these beneficial proteins and also take out stuff from the blood that's been building up harmful substances so perhaps there's like a filtration thing that you can do so people are honing in on it yeah and there's a lot of money and research going into it
3: uh, i was going to ask the rest of the pod if uh, they would be willing to receive young blood plasma but i think the answer would be no because you're all too young right so <laughs> <a> flattering rowan <laughs> <laughs> you can farm your blood out you know but is 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 that something anyone fancies getting some young blood
5: i'm good <laughs>
2: I mean, there there's there've also been all these you know scandals of contaminated blood and and uh, the idea that, um, that certain diseases come from things that might uh, might appear in the blood. So I think un- unless there was like lots of evidence that this was really safe, then it doesn't seem like a great idea.
4: So sensible, Rowan, would you do it? Yeah, <laughs> I would <do> it. happy <laughs> without to do a it. doubt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: That's our sci fi alert. We've had vampires. Uh, What's another classic Halloween monster? Anyone? Werewolves.
4: Ghosts. Zombies, maybe?
3: Zombies! Yes. Leo, you're our resident zombie expert. Uh, Do they exist?
5: Well, zombie microbes exist. Okay, what's a zombie microbe, please? So these are microbes that uh, live in sediment under the seafloor, so really, really deep under the ocean, and they can survive on less energy than scientists previously thought was necessary for any living thing. Because they consume so little energy, these microbes are able to survive buried under the seafloor
3: for millions of years. They survive for millions of years. So are they millions of years old?
5: Yes, probably. So one of the researchers behind the discovery told me that it might be related to their ability to lower their metabolic rate and enter what he literally called a zombie-like state.
3: So technically, a zombie is a member of the undead. That's the scientific definition of a zombie. Uh, But, you know, life and death are really hard to define these days, or at least the lines between them are blurring. And, uh, you know, so the state of undeath, therefore, is, is going to be a really impossible thing to define. So given those constraints, I think it's totally acceptable that these should be called microbe zombies, zombie microbes.
5: Yeah, so the scientists who discovered these, these things calculated that they use 100 times less energy than what was previously thought to be the limit for life. So a few cells actually survived on less than a zepto-watt of power. That's apparently 10 to the minus 21 watts.
3: A zepto-watt, my God.
5: Yeah, one very cool thing about this is it means that if there ever was life on Mars, for example, then the yeah. findings raise the possibility that there could still be remnants of that life subsisting and kind of waiting for the environment to become habitable again.
6: Wow. The zombie microbes on Mars. I love that. Wow. It sounds like it should be a movie,
5: although <laughs> yeah. maybe quite a boring one if the microbes are just hanging around <laughs> under sediment for millions <laughs> of years, not doing very
4: much.
3: Yeah, well, you know, we still want to see that movie.
4: OK, so... Um, we've invented a, a future sci-fi uh, movie there but what's the uh what's the current sci-fi link
3: well you know any pick pick your favorite zombie movie really sean of the dead if you want comedy dawn of the dead uh what's what's everyone else's favorite zombie movie
4: i hate zombie movies count me out <laughs> I also
5: try to avoid scary movies, but 28 Days Later is yeah. coming to mind. Yes, <laughs> it's about, um... you know, a virus that puts people into a zombie-like state where yeah. they want to kill everyone. I don't know if they even count as zombies, actually. No, a, a, a dead, pandemic
3: but... <laughs> zombie movie. I, I was hoping yeah. someone was going to mention that one. Great. <laughs> time out from the horror. This is your reminder that as a treasured listener to the podcast, you can pick up a 20% discount off a subscription to New Scientist magazine. It's also a reminder that all of the stories we're talking about today are things that we featured in the magazine.
4: The horror is real. The horror
3: is real. Yeah, it's all real. Uh, All you have to do is go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout. It's been great to see loads of people signing up using this code.
4: As a subscriber, you get access to loads of premium content, videos, features, events, interviews, and an amazing archive of work going back years. POD20 at checkout on newscientist.com gets you your discount and your membership of the New Scientist Global family.
3: Now, has anyone on the pod had a near-death experience?
4: Uh, I, don't, I think I actually might have had one. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if this counts, but I once um, got an electric shock and I blacked out, but I heard the scream coming from, like, outside of my body. Like, oh, I was outside scream. of my bo- Yeah. Ugh. Wow. It was very weird. I don't, it's not a near-death experience, perhaps, but, like, an out-of-body experience. Out-of-body experience. experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Which has made me pretty interested in um, what's going on in the brain, actually, when people have near-death experiences and come back to describe all sorts of weird things. I've heard people saying that they feel like they've left their body like that or seeing visions of dead relatives. Sam, this is something that you've been looking at, right?
2: Yeah, so this is um, when people have, um, for example, if they've been resuscitated and then they've um, they've had a cardiac arrest or something, quite often they have, report these very vivid um, experiences with strange things like um, leaving their body or uh, a feeling of inner peace, and they might come away with a, a changed outlook on life and a new perspective. Um, but all of these features of, of near-death experiences are also reported by people who've taken psychedelics. So some researchers think that taking psychedelic drugs might help us understand What causes these experiences? One study at um, Imperial College London, where they investigated this idea using DMT, which is found in ayahuasca, the uh, plant brew that people take in the Amazon. It's a sort of uh, traditional sacrament that people have used for hundreds of years. um, And more recently, people from the West uh, go to Brazil or Peru to have an ayahuasca ceremony. And that's often intended to help them with uh, emotional issues of some kind. And in these experiences, people frequently report feeling as though they've died and been reborn.
3: Yeah, I know some people have done this, but it's massively intense, isn't it? By all accounts, do you have to go to the Amazon to do it? Because can't they they do on little? You can go to like Holland and do it, can't you?
2: Uh, I'm not sure what the legal status is in in other countries. I think it's it's legal for uh, it's legal in Peru and Brazil. I think, um, and there there may be. I think there are shamans in in Europe and the US who, who travelled around doing it in a sort of underground way. Right. Um, but as far as I know, you, you can't legally do it, uh, certainly not, not in the UK.
3: Okay. So what about the study, though? What what did that involve?
2: So they, they can do it legally in the study um, right. uh, with a research uh, permit. They gave DMT intravenously to 13 volunteers, and they gave them a questionnaire that's used to research uh, near-death experiences. They did this twice, so each volunteer got DMT once and a placebo and another time. And uh, on on the DMT session, all 13 of them gave responses that met the criteria for a near-death experience. So they report things like entering an unearthly environment and having a feeling of unity with the universe.
4: So do they know what's going on in the brain to create those kind of experiences?
2: Well, with psychedelics, uh, there's been quite a lot of um, brain imaging studies. And uh, one of the regions in the brain that's affected is the default mode network, which is A few different regions that work together and collectively make up our sense of self. And under psychedelics, these regions become less cohesive. And that might explain why drugs like DMT have this effect called ego dissolution, where people feel like the boundaries of the self have disappeared you feel like you're separate to your body somehow, you might feel a deeper connection with other people and with the universe. Um, I've actually had an experience a bit like this myself when I took part in a clinical trial of psilocybin, which is a compound found in magic mushrooms.
3: Was it scary? You know, to have a near-death experience, it it sounds terrifying. Is there a difference between a near-death experience and having your ego dissolved?
2: Yeah, there probably are differences, but um, but the similarities are quite striking. And um, some of the research on near-death experiences has found that they are, for most people, overwhelmingly positive. People feel very peaceful, um, even euphoric in some cases, and only a minority of people have negative experiences. So people often come out of them with this kind of new outlook on life. And, and these are also features that people report with psychedelics. So I, I think the, those similarities are quite striking.
3: Yeah, it's amazing that a drug can disrupt those the boundaries of the self, and I think you know it says something really deep about the reality of the self or the unreality of it. So, could the same thing happen when people have a near death experience?
2: Obviously, it's very hard to study the brain during a, a real near death experience, but and because of these similarities, it's possible that there are similar patterns of brain activity involved, and that might explain why people have these hallucinations and feel like they're leaving their body and so on. But
3: they have put people in MRI machines and and scan their brains as they're you know losing consciousness so you can see how the brain shuts down you know different regions of the brain shut down in real time i wonder if anyone's actually died while having their brain scanned
2: as, i don't think that has happened so yeah people might lose consciousness but you but the, you don't have a near death experience anytime you you lose consciousness right. so i don't think we've ever actually seen what's happening in the brain during one of these uh, experiences outside of, um, you know, simulating them with drugs. But there is this intriguing idea um, that because trace amounts of DMT are actually present in human blood and urine, um, so people have said that maybe when we're facing death, we produce bigger quantities of it, and then the brain has this experience um, that's generated by perhaps DMT itself. But this is very speculative so you know we don't actually know that this happens and uh, as far as we know it's only tiny amounts that that we we do see in the body
5: yeah i wonder if that makes the experience of death like more pleasant or different it would be
4: super interesting to find out Hmm. i guess we're all going to find out one day (laughs) grim now it's time for halloween life form of the week it's our ode to neglected organisms
3: yeah, so there's many animals that we could choose uh, for Halloween. Actually, many plants as well, as, we, as we've just heard about from Sam. Uh, but Beth, what have you gone for?
6: Uh, I've gone for the vampire squid. Excellent. So vampire squid is a pretty impressive name, uh, but it gets better, actually. Its scientific name is Vampirotuthis infernalis, which translates to vampire squid from hell. <laughs> yeah, that makes them sound pretty spooky. And they are, but probably not in the way that you might think.
3: So they don't feed on blood.
6: No. Um, so in reality, they're not vampires. They're not even close. Um, the name comes from their black or red colouring. Um, this dark webbing they have that connects their arms and looks a bit like a cloak. Uh, and their very large eyes, which can sometimes look red. Mm. Um, they actually have the largest eye to body size ratio of any animal. Wow.
4: That sounds so, terrifying.
6: Yeah, it does sound pretty creepy. They um, So they, they may look like vampires, albeit quite small ones, given they reach a maximum of about 30 centimetres long. Um, they don't act like them. Vampire squid are unique among cephalopods in that they don't actually hunt living prey. Wow. Yeah so they actually eat detritus so that's things like dead plankton and fecal matter that floats by in the very low oxygen zones of the ocean that they live in so that's depths of up to around 3,000 meters.
3: It's pretty scary down there anyway actually.
6: (laughs) Yeah it's pretty creepy to us but there aren't actually many predators there. But if a vampire squid does encounter a threat, it can spray a bioluminescent mucus to disorientate any foes yeah, yeah. <laughs> they also have uh, two light organs at the rear of their bodies and these look a bit like glowing eyes
4: and they can manipulate these to seem like they're moving away from a predator Wow I, I love this it sounds like it's like the anti-vampire squid like it doesn't yeah. actually do anything vampire like but it just shines lights at, at yeah. potential enemies to scare them away.
3: What, uh, what else can they do, Beth?
6: Well, another thing that's quite seasonally appropriate that they can do um, is that they can turn themselves inside out um, to expose these sort of rows of fleshy spines, which are called cirra. But that's sometimes referred to as a pumpkin posture, which is nice.
3: <laughs> quite disgusting.
6: <laughs> yeah, and nice and disgusting. And so not only are they not vampires, they also aren't squid. Uh, they're they're more closely related to octopuses, but they have features of both. And they're actually the sole surviving species of their own separate order called Vampyromorphida. The reason why they're so special is because they have these two long, thin filaments that they extend and retract to catch their food. So they act like a bit like fishing lines. Um, and today these filaments are completely unique to vampire squid. And they're, there's something very Lovecraftian about vampire squid. And I think... The reason why is because they they feel very alien and ancient. They're what are sometimes called living fossils, which are creatures that have existed relatively unchanged for many millions of years. Because of this, vampire squid give us a sort of glimpse back to a time before cephalopods diversified into distinct groups like squid and octopuses um, in a period called the Mesozoic Marine Revolution, which was around 100 to 160 million years ago.
3: I love that. The Mesozoic Marine Revolution.
6: Yeah, it's brilliant, (laughs) isn't it? The deep ocean is very Halloween. (laughs) It seems to
5: be full of creepy vampire squid and zombie microbes.
6: Yeah, (laughs) I wouldn't want to go down there myself.
3: Um, I just want to add a shout out to the vampire bat, which sounds an obvious thing to do, but it's a gorgeous little animal that we can all learn a lot from because they've got this altruistic habit of donating blood to their roost mates. So when they come back to the cave you know in dawn the the ones that haven't managed to get a blood meal they sit around and wait and the ones that have fed they come back and regurgitate blood to the other ones and to keep them from starving and that's Aww. just a, that's a lovely sharing value Aww, for society. Charming.
4: Yeah. <laughs> now it's time to hand over to our american colleagues chelsea and leia who have news of a monster that makes our zombies and vampires look really quite unscary and i'm not going to make any jokes about uh
0: Yeah, our monster this week does not live in the White House. Hello from America, everyone, the home of the modern Halloween experience. Yes, we have for you a monster that is more dangerous than anything we've heard so far in the pod. Actually, this really could be an existential threat, right? Yeah,
1: the scariest thing in the universe isn't strictly a monster, but it is spooky, and it is invisible. So I think it counts. (laughs) It's a place where matter has condensed so much and gotten so dense in one place that the laws of physics completely break down.
0: Black holes, right? Yes. They are monsters, but they're also podcast favorites around here. I always sort of imagine them as enormous objects lurking in the dark in the crevices of galaxies,
1: but is that right? Well, it's not exactly right first of all, they come in all different sizes. Some of them are absolutely huge, millions or billions of times the mass of the sun, like the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way. But some could be, if they exist, so small that they could take up just a fraction of the volume of the Earth. And those are called primordial black holes, but we're not sure if they're real. But don't worry, as far as we know, there are no black holes, huge or primordial, that are a danger to Earth, as far as we know.
0: But like primordial ones are so small, they could Be anywhere?
1: They could be anywhere. We haven't spotted (laughs) any. There's no evidence for them existing.
0: Still, I imagine it wouldn't be pleasant to encounter any black hole, especially a large one, right? What would happen if I, say, if I got up the nerve and somehow had the ability (laughs) to jump right into one?
1: (laughs) Well, it wouldn't be great. The reason black holes are black is that their gravitational pull is so strong that nothing can escape, not even light. Um, So if you were floating towards it and you got caught in that gravitational pull, you would be stuck. And at first, you wouldn't maybe feel anything. You'd just feel like you were in free fall, just floating in space. And if I were watching you from the outside, um, you would start to look like you were slowing down as you were approaching the black hole. Cool. Um, And the light particles around you would create this stream of light and you'd be sort of floating in this light. So when we think about pictures of a black hole, like the one that the Event Horizon Telescope took earlier this year, that's that bright light that you see in that picture is the light falling into the black hole.
0: But then, at some point, I'd come to the event horizon, the point of no return. I'm guessing that beyond that point, gravity would do a real number on me.
1: Yeah, at that point, it would be bad. Um, (laughs) You would go through what astrophysicists call Spaghettification. It is the best official scientific term. Absolutely. Um, and in spaghettification, basically, the gravity is so strong that different parts of your body feel different strengths of pull from the black hole. So you would get pulled apart in different parts of your body at different speeds, and obviously, you would die
0: grand okay so if my feet were going in first my toes would stretch into noodles before my shoulders would
1: yeah it would be very bad uh first your feet would get stretched into noodles and then the whole rest of you and uh it would happen very quickly so it probably wouldn't be too painful but it still sounds very unpleasant
0: yeah but is there any way i could survive a black hole or is this just it game over
1: <laughs> well, so there are some theoretical black holes that that you could potentially survive if you were to travel into a black hole with an electric charge, which we don't think most black holes have, but mm-hmm. potentially some could and if you were traveling into one you could survive it, but things would get really weird because in that kind of black hole there could be a second horizon beyond the event horizon, which is called the Cauchy horizon. And once you pass the Cauchy horizon, determinism would break down.
0: Okay, so let's say I'm moving along, I'm passing through this Cauchy horizon, and I've brought a ball with me. If I throw it out in front of me, what happens?
1: Well, physicists aren't entirely sure because of the breakdown of determinism. So it could be almost anything. It could fly sideways. It could turn around and hit you in the face. (laughs) Um, It could could do just about anything uh, because cause and effect wouldn't be connected there. So... So since the laws of physics completely break down within that horizon, you might encounter a bunch of wild stuff. If the singularity at the center of the black hole happens to be a wormhole, you could pass through it and be spewed out on the other side in another part of space. Nice. Cool. But And if the singularities are admitting stuff, it could emit all kinds of things. It could emit a whole planet or a million spiders or just about <laughs> anything you can think of. Okay. Well, I'm actually starting to get a little scared now. <laughs> <laughs> yep, uh yeah singularities are terrifying and event horizons protect us from that breakdown of physics which is why they're so important
0: but okay so in theory there are wormholes we can travel through right every time i've asked a physicist about this kind of thing though they always come back uh, with the same answer
1: yeah so there are in theory wormholes you could travel through but you would
3: probably die trying
0: Wonderful. Well, on that cheerful note, it's back to Rowan and the rest of the pod.
3: Thanks, Chelsea and Leia. That's all for this week. Uh, remember, although we live in a demon-haunted world, as Carl Sagan once said, science is a candle in the dark, and New Scientist is your candle in the dark. <laughs> thanks for joining us, uh, Leia, Beth, and Sam, and thanks to you for listening. Uh, as a podcast listener, remember, you can get a 20% Offer subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout.
4: Do get in touch for the chance of a shout out on the show. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod and you can email us at podcast at NewScientist.com. And in the meantime, do spread the word about our show. Until next time, take care and watch out for zombies, everybody. Whoa. Bye. Bye. Bye.
3: Bye.
1: This podcast is produced by Oli Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.
3: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80%
5: less
0: than clay litter.